0: All right, let's continue to talk science here in segment number three. Um, astronaut Steve Robinson, graduate of UC Davis's School of Engineering, returned to, uh, to Sacramento uh, this last week for the um, the Esquire IMAX, starting of Tom Hanks' documentary, Magnificent Desolation, Walking on the Moon 3D. Robinson appeared here on the UCD campus, and I'm sorry to say I was not in attendance. I don't know whether... Uh, Kirsten Sanford was from This Week in Science, but we'll try and get a report from her. if, if she, um, She's been trying to get uh, Steve Robinson on her show, and I don't know whether she was there. I think Edie Lau, the bee science writer, is someone else who have been meaning to get on this program for some time. We'd like to talk to, to Edie about some of the great reporting she's doing over at the Bee. Let's talk a little bit about resource management. The Grand Banks Fishery off the Canadian East Coast has not recovered since the fishing ban in 1995. And new evidence suggests this is because fishermen are covertly catching the few fish that still remain. The Grand Banks fishery, when I was a kid, was, you know, the world's premier fishery. Cod were considered to be the most numerous, uh, you know, uh, edible fish available to mankind. And they were basically fished to what is apparently non-sustainable levels. Well, um, people have been pondering why does the fish, the cod, are not recovering, and it appears that uh, bycatch, in other words, species that are caught supposedly accidentally while targeting other fish, are the reason. Uh, they note that the, the cod bycatch of Canadian shrimp and flounder boats and Portuguese and Russian boats totaled 5,400 tons two years ago, which amounts to 90% of the local cod population. Uh, they should note that uh, in 1994, before there was the complete collapse of the fishery, the bycatch in the area was 170 tons. Now, it's legal to, to, to sell this, quote, bycatch, unquote, if it's caught accidentally. And it's noted that a lot of these f- fishing vessels out there are only profitable because of this supposed accidental cap- capture of cod. Something has to be done about this. In a similar story, apparently since 1992, European boats fishing for deep-sea sharks, which which are found 800 to 1,200 meters down, uh, they managed to crash the stocks of these slow-breeding fish by 80% in the past 13 years. Uh, the, the part of the article that just made me sick from, from New Scientist magazine was that uh, they only basically pull in the, the nets every 3 to 10 days, by which point, two-thirds of the catch is already rotten and dumped. In the third of a trio of rather depressing stories uh, from China, it appears that China may lift its ban on tiger bones. Yes, apparently in uh, Chinese herbal medicine, it's felt that if you grind up the bone of tigers, it's a good anti-rheumatic medicine. China is proposing to allow the uh, the bones of captive bred tigers to be sold uh, for medicine like this. Of course everyone knows that poachers are able to uh, to go out and poach the few remaining uh, wild tigers and and get them into the system and uh, many people think this is just going to be the end of tigers up in the in the Manchurian area. The World Wildlife Fund is protesting this move noting there are 3,000 captive bred tigers in China there's about 5,000 left in the wild an all-time low and obviously this will not have a, uh, a happy uh, happy result on you know, the remaining Stock of wild animals. On a happier note, it's been noted that scientists may be able to use pheromones to herd lampreys, which are a, <laughs> a rather disgusting parasitic fish, which got the, which found their way into the North American Great Lakes uh, earlier in uh, the 20th century and have been an unbelievable nuisance. These are cylindrical, boneless sea lampreys. They they predate the dinosaurs. And they basically latch onto fish. They don't even have jaws and basically attack them and basically suck out the juices and kill the fish. article in New Scientist magazine noted that the fish basically destroyed the Great Lakes fishing industry in the 1930s after they hitchhiked rides in on the hulls of ships coming in from the Atlantic. Now, they've been using certain chemicals to kill these lampreys, and, and some of the fish, uh, recreational fishing stocks, have made uh, a partial rebound in, in certain areas. But the compound is toxic, and uh, people aren't happy with it. So they're hoping by using a sex pheromone released by the male lamprey to attract females, uh, they could basically all uh, uh, round them up and you know kill them. But one thing that I thought was odd was that the lamprey populations in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Europe are down because in europe it's prized as a delicacy and has been fished close to extinction now i'm really intrigued by this idea that they might be able to herd and trap great lake lampreys to then sell them for food to portugal and finland where they're considered a delicacy and again this is a heavy heavy, heavily relying on news scientists today about three weeks before that article came out um, an essay written by Joe Roman, as a conservation biologist and freelance writer from Vermont, noted that uh, since we have a talent for eating species to extinction, why not put that to good use? And apparently, they wiped out lampreys in Europe be- by eating them. This article suggests we take on all these various uh, exotic um, animal uh, invaders that have hit our ecosystems across, uh, across the world and eat them to extinction. Case in point, they noted that the soft-shell clam, Maya arenaria, is native to the U.S. East Coast. When you eat fried clam, popular dish, uh, back East, you order, you order one in Cape Cod in the summer, you're eating Maya arenaria, said Jim Carleton, an invasive species biologist at uh, Williams College in Massachusetts. They note that on the West Coast, though, it's become the most abundant clam in the Oregon Bays, but is viewed as a waste clam. They note that in the UK, someone thought it'd be fun to bring the gray squirrel over. Well, unfortunately, the gray squirrel has taken the British countryside by storm. It's displaced the native red squirrel and is destroying the bark of native trees. They note that the Hadley Bowling Green Inn in Worcester put the gray squirrel on the menu. (laughs) And apparently diners were enjoying the dish, uh, (laughs) which combined roasted squirrel with foie gras Uh, But unfortunately, animal rights people got involved, protested, and... um, Well, actually, they weren't protesting the squirrels. They were protesting the foie gras. At any rate, we've been eating squirrel in this country for a long time. Maybe it'll catch on over in Europe. They're encouraging people in the U.S. Southwest to eat... Crayfish at every opportunity. The Louisiana crayfish was introduced uh, as food for sport fish in the 1960s, but soon set about devouring native plants and mountain streams before moving on to native animals and eventually cannibalism. Eat crayfish at every opportunity, the department tells volunteers. And the nutria, a South American rodent, which looks kind of like a small beaver, is apparently a pest all over the southern United States, but someone's discovered that slow-cooked nutria is pretty good. Apparently down in Louisiana, celebrity chefs such as Cajun Paul Prudhomme and French-born Daniel Bonnot have taken on the nutria. Well, this all seems to make good sense to us here at Radio Parallax, so we would encourage you to go out and eat crayfish, nutria, and... uh, Soft-shell crab, whenever you get a chance. All right, and here's an item. I just, I love stories like this. Um, Pterosaurs, flying dinosaurs. Of course, we all grew up with the idea that dinosaurs could fly. Well, someone did a study on the skeletons of of, uh, so-called flying dinosaurs some time back and concluded they could not have flown under their own power. They must have just glided off of cliffs, climbed up and then glided down. Well... Someone apparently noticed that reptiles were using a little aerodynamic trick which probably did allow them to fly like birds. Evidently, Matthew Wilkinson and colleagues in the Animal Flight Group at the University of Cambridge studied some well-preserved fossils from Brazil. And they noted that there's an articulated bone called the teroid uh, which supported a flap of skin at the leading edge of the wing. Thus, uh, like, uh, like airplanes... the the pterosaur could use this wing flap for added lift and therefore take off and fly like a bird. I think the the best known pterosaur was the pterodactyl of dinosaur model fame. From the technology file, I don't know why anyone didn't think of this sooner, engineers from Purdue University discovered that by adding beryllium oxide to the standard uranium oxide pellets used in light water reactors, Well, the pellets last longer. They normally tend to crack and degrade as temperatures of the reactor core rise and fall, which means they have to be replaced before all the fuel has been used up. But by adding beryllium oxide, which is a better conductor of heat, the pellets are then able to cool more effectively. Such a simple thing, just a little matter of you know basic physics and chemistry. I like stories like that, and and I love. Stories like this, also from the technology file. The question is asked, how do you make a structure stronger? The answer, it seems, is to fill it with thousands of holes. Article from New Scientist. Once again, this is New Scientist uh, day to day. Oh, well. It might seem counterintuitive, the article noted, but holes can add resilience to material by absorbing stresses or or the energy of an impact. Researchers came up with a formula for the ideal size and distribution of such cavities. The approach was inspired by wood, a material that has evolved over millions of years to withstand the worst that weather can dish out. A team in the UK used an electron microscope to examine the holes found in hardwoods, which are 10 to 150 micrometers in diameter, found that the whole walls absorb the energy produced by stress to the trees by flexing. This explains why woods such as beech, oak, and willow are particularly strong, even though their density is no greater than that of many other woods. Softwoods have fewer, smaller holes. And it appears the jury is in, and gorillas are capable of mental calculations and abstract thought. This discovery came from the fact that the gorillas photographed in the wild in the Republic of Congo's uh, National Park have been observed, at least in one case, taking a stick, reaching out into a stream, and using it as a depth gauge to see how deep the water is. There's a picture in New Scientist, uh, and if you can pull it up on the web, uh, you, ought, you ought to give it a shot. I mean, it looks, it looks, it's just so human, the way this gorilla is reaching out and just using a stick to see how deep the water is. It's really, really cool. An article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shows uh, that apparently when ancient mariners said that there were milky seas that that glowed a bluish white at night extended as far as the horizon, were true. Steve Miller of the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory in Monterey, California, took a look at some some, uh, archives of satellite cloud cover data and noted that uh, the effect has been reported more than 200 times since 1915 but it uh, had not been photographed from space until Miller found, uh, by amplifying the signal on, on the photograph, a bright structure that followed the sea surface currents. The structure spanned a 15,000 square kilometer uh, area, which is the size of Connecticut. It lasted for three consecutive nights, and uh, the favored theory is that it's bioluminescence from bacteria associated with microalgae. You mathematicians may, uh, may be keen to know that Miller calculated that you'd need four times ten to the 22nd bacteria to produce the light. Yeah, We're, we're just, we're just on, a, on a new scientist fest because they've had three issues in a row that are just fabulous in the articles. One here by Bijal Travidi titled Slimming for Slackers. They noted that uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, they were rearing a bunch of mice germ-free. The trillions of microbes that would normally live inside these mice guts are entirely absent. These germ-free mice gorge on rodent chow. They eat, they eat, and they eat, and yet they do not get fat. If a normal mouse ate that much, they would quickly balloon up, but the mice in the bubble stay magically svelte. Now, they took some uh, genetically identical mice and had them with normal gut bacteria and found that the the germ-free mice had 42% less body fat Uh, despite eating 29% more food. Researcher Jeffrey Gordon thinks the reason is that bacteria make digestion so much more efficient that if you don't have germs in your gut, you pass through a lot of things you would normally break down. For example, the sugar-loving Bacteroides Theta Iota Bacteria for example, which accounts for 6% of all microbes in the colon, produces the largest arsenal of carbohydrate-busting enzymes of any microbe sequenced. It has 240 such enzymes compared to 98, which are produced in the human body. These enzymes enable the bacteria to break down fibers that are packed with xylose and arabinose gums, which, which are hard for humans to break down, and then release those nutrients, which are otherwise inaccessible to the host. And it turns out the bacteria aren't just supplying us with extra calories, they've evolved strategies for manipulating us. Uh, In in these mice, the gut bacteria collectively and selectively suppressed a protein called FIAF, fast-induced adipocyte factor. FIAF inhibits fat storage. The germ-free mice have nothing suppressing fioff, and this helps them stay trim. The numbers in all this I found rather intriguing. When they start realizing how many, how many bacteria are in your gut, it turns out that there are, you know, uh, there are 500 to 1,000 species in all of our guts, and, and the total number of, of, of microbes is more than 10 times the number of cells that make up the human body. So what, what all of this means remains uh, incompletely clear, but it, you know obviously our gut microbes play a significant role in digestion, and they've co-evolved with us, f- forging mutually beneficial relationships. The bugs get room and board in exchange for labor and chemical currency. Gordon estimates that uh, all the genomes of our, of our gut microbes combined probably contain 100 times as many genes as those in the human genome. These microbes endow us with traits we didn't need to evolve on our own. We can expect in the years to come that various methods of you know, probiotics, putting beneficial bacteria where we want them in our guts, is going to become a much more exact science, and uh, we're going to learn a lot about how to manage obesity with this. This is very exciting stuff. All right, we are just about out of time, um, so I want to close with an item from The Onion and would like to forward promote the fact that on next week's program, Joe Garden, staff writer of The Onion, will return to Radio Parallax to talk about their latest compilation from the archives of the satirical newspaper. I wish we had video. It shows a smiling Jacques Chirac and George Bush standing in front of a uh, an emblem that says Louisiana. Dateline Baton Rouge, the White House announced today that President Bush has successfully sold the state of Louisiana back to the French at more than double its original selling price of $11 million. This is a bold step forward for America, said Bush, and America will be stronger and better as a result. I stand here in unity with French Prime Minister Jack Chirac, who is so kind to accept my offer of Louisiana in exchange for $25 million cash. (laughs) <laughs> Onion notes the state ravaged by Hurricane Katrina will cost hundreds of billions of dollars to rebuild. Now Jack understands full well this one's a fixer-upper, said Bush. He and the French people are quite prepared to pump out all that water and make Louisiana a decent place to live again. They've got a lot of work to do, but Jack's assured me if it's not right, they're going to fix it.
1: Cajun, he lived by himself in the swamp. They hunted alligator for living. He just knocked him in the head with a stone. The Louisiana log gonna get famous.
0: that about does it for today's show. I had about, I got a pile of about 20 more science articles we just and there's just not enough, just not enough minutes in the hour. Our thanks again to Chris Mooney, author of The Republican War on Science, and our own GM, General Manager at KDVS, Stephen Valentino. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for Todd, and we will see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock.
1: Well, a in Named him after a man of the cloth. Called him Use one hand. That's all he got left called alligator, bit <laughs> Left arm gone clean up to the elbow. Well the sheriff got men and amos was in the swamp trapping alligator skin. So he snuck in the swamp, gonna get the boy. But he never come out again. Well, I wonder where the Louisiana sheriff went to. Son that could eat up his brain and groceries Named him after a man of the clock Called him Amos Moses Sit down on him Amos Make it count, son